We at the Cato Institute try to live our principles, and that means taking no government money. So it's through support from people like you that we're able to work toward our shared vision of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Please consider supporting the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by visiting cato.org slash podcast sponsor and learn more about the benefits of sponsorship. Give a thousand dollars and I'll gladly give you a shout out on the podcast. Thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 20th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. How did Cato's Gene Healy spend the lockdown? Brushing up on partisanship, polarization, and hatred. At the most recent Cato Club gathering at the Cato Institute, Healy detailed what he found. Thank you all for being here. It's been way too long. I hope that you and yours stayed healthy during your extended period of house arrest and maybe even got to use your time productively took up home pickling or deepened your yoga practice, that sort of thing. Me, I spent much of my lockdown in a windowless row house basement office reading up on the uh, political science literature on toxic partisanship and the rise of political hatred. I don't know why, it was just on my mind a lot at the time. So it started to feel a little personal with tanks outside a think tank. Now, Joe Biden, who also spent much of 2020 locked in a basement, had some similar concerns. Uh, here he is uh, on his, uh, his impeccably boring Twitter feed telling us uh, it's time to put away the harsh rhetoric and lower the temperature and listen to each other again. Uh, polarization was a central theme of his inaugural address as well. We must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue. He said in a speech that used the word unity no fewer than 11 times. Unity, unity, unity. Unity is the path forward. Of course, it's a familiar tune. It's something we've been hearing from presidents long before, since long before it started to seem like the country was coming apart. A kinder, gentler nation. That was George H.W. Bush. A uniter, not a divider. That was his... uh, incompetent kid. Uh, Barack Obama wasn't just going to stop the ocean's rise. Through the sheer power of presidential happy talk, he was going to kumbaya us all into one America beyond red and blue. Now, true, Donald Trump never promised us a rose garden of national togetherness. And while I'm not going to call his approach refreshing, uh, In some ways, it was uh, more realistic because the fact is that what has torn us asunder is not going to be joined back together with pretty words from White House speechwriters. POTUS can't unite us. The presidency itself is at the center of what's driving us apart. Presidential power polarizes. It wasn't or wasn't just Donald Trump's rageaholic antics or mean tweets that made the presidency a central fault line of polarization. It's the fact that the president increasingly has the power to reshape vast areas of American life. One man can decide whether we have a trade war with China or a shooting war with Iran, uh, can decide who gets to come to the United States and who gets to stay, uh, whether landlords can collect the rent whether you're on the hook for your student loans, and whether or not you have to show your COVID papers to keep your job. 
And when so much turns on who controls the White House, when we've raised the stakes of our political differences this high, you can bet we're going to be at each other's throats about it. The modern presidency, by its very nature, is a divider, not a uniter. It's become far too powerful to be anything else. That's my theme for this morning, and here's where we're headed. Uh, why, we're, why we're polarized, how the presidency makes it worse, Biden unchained, why it's probably going to get worse, and what, if anything, we can do about it. And I'm hoping to run out of time before we get to that part. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing to appreciate is that mass polarization is real. It's not just something we hallucinated while trapped inside staring into the hell mouth of Twitter. It's a measurable trend tracked by political scientists. In the last two decades, it's gotten measurably worse. But politics now divides us more than sex, age, race, or religion. And we use the word tribalism a lot in this context, but in an important paper published last fall, a group of leading scholars suggest that religion is really a more fruitful source of metaphors for what's come over us. Uh, it's fire and brimstone. You know, we're drunk on hatred of the alien other and on our zealous faith in the moral correctness of our own particular sect. So they suggest the term political sectarianism. Uh, think uh, Sunni and Shia. Uh, Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. Hatred? Is that the right word? Afraid it is. The graphic here is for, ran in The Economist, but the polling data comes from a study published in January entitled Lethal Mass Partisanship. On the first item, the, the actual wording of the question was, would you say that the opposing party are a serious threat to the United States and its people, or wouldn't you go that far? More than two-thirds of Republicans and uh, nearly two-thirds of Democrats would go that far. In fact, around half of each go so far as to say that the other team is downright evil. When they get out of line, treat them like animals, say a substantial minority on each side. Not pictured there is another question from the, the survey in which they asked voters, do you ever think we'd be better off as a country if large numbers of the opposing party in the public today just died? Republicans were slightly nicer on this one. Only 15% of them pled guilty. 20% uh, of Democrats owned up to occasionally wishing mass death on fellow Americans who don't vote like they do. And how much do you want to bet that at least some of them were proud owners of that god-awful virtue-signaling yard sign that uh, announces to your neighbors that in this house, we believe science is real, love is love, and kindness is everything. Well, how did we get here? <laughs> how we got here is a complicated story with uh, more debate than disagreement in the, than, than, than consensus in the literature. Um, what is clear, I think, is that it was more by accident than by design. Much of it was a byproduct of consumer choice, a good thing. Uh, people who vote Republican also tend to like big yards, with, you know, room for a big grill and lots of parking. Uh, Democrats like 
urban, urban amenities and walking or scooting to stuff. So for decades now, we've been moving away from each other, uh, self-segregating into deeper red and blue neighborhoods. Uh, in 1976, for example, only about a quarter of Americans, American voters, lived in so-called landslide counties. These are counties where one presidential candidate wins the vote by 20 points or more. Now, 60% of Americans live in landslide territory. And increasing numbers of us tell pollsters that we don't have any close friends who, who voted for the, the other candidate. It's, how in the hell did he win? I don't know anyone who voted for him. Meanwhile, we've been self-segregating mentally as well. Uh, in the digital age, we get to design our own news streams, uh, take charge of our personal information diet, and load up with the stuff that we like. And it turns out what a lot of us like hearing is that we were right all along, and it's the bastards from the other side who are ruining this country. Well, here's a thought experiment. If it was your job to design a constitution from scratch, how would you propose to govern a country like the one that I've just described? Let me suggest an answer, as gently as possible. If you are designing institutions for a deeply divided country like this, then in the interests of social peace, you'd probably want to minimize the number of one-size-fits-all decisions, zero-sum calls that have to be made at the top. You want important questions to be settled closer to home, where, where there's more agreement and common ground, neighbor to neighbor. Uh, in areas where you can't avoid having one national policy, in something like trade relations or war, say, you, you're, what you're going to want to do is forge consensus. You're going to want elected representatives from multiple branches of government uh, coming together and, uh, and finding middle ground. You don't want one person making that call. Now, personally, if, this, if I'm running this thought experiment, uh, I'd hit reset and go all the way back to the Articles of Confederation. Uh, most of you probably aren't as hardcore as that, so you'd probably want something like our original Constitution, which is a fine choice, so don't feel bad about it. Uh, but instead, over the last couple of decades, what we've been doing is running a much more dangerous experiment. While Americans were growing so far apart that they could hardly understand each other anymore, uh, we have been busily making the already most powerful office in the world even more powerful. Fundamental questions of governance that used to be left to Congress, the states, or the people are now increasingly settled, winner-take-all, by which party manages to seize the presidency. We've dramatically raised the stakes of our political differences. And yet we, we were, we're almost surprised that it's become harder to keep the peace among warring sects. What we've done, you know, the way we have deformed our governmental structure is increasingly convincing large numbers of Americans on both sides of the political divide that every election is a Flight 93 election and it's charge the cockpit, do or die. It's not a good place to be in. I don't think we want to be there. Which brings us to Joe Biden. He was gonna deliver normalcy and lower the, ten the temperature of our overheated politics, remember? He was supposed to be boring. Donald Trump said that repeatedly uh, during the final leg of the 2020 campaign. If, he, if we get sleepy Joe, 
Nobody's going to be interested in politics anymore. And I swear it made me think he wanted Biden to win. But now the mean old man is gone and the nice old man is president. Are you feeling the normalcy? Are you bored yet? What actually happened is that Sleepy Joe came out of the gate at such a blazing death metal pace that for a hot moment, it even scared the New York Times editorial board. Ease up on the executive actions, Joe. By the 100-day mark, Joe Biden had already issued more executive orders than Barack Obama managed in his entire first year. And just one day this summer, I don't know how many of you noticed it, but it stuck out to me, the A section of the Wall Street Journal featured three separate stories that together paint a picture of, of Biden as supreme overlord of the U.S. economy, uh, deciding which products can be sold and which, uh, which companies live and which die. TikTok could stay on your kid's phone for, for now because uh, Biden re reversed a Trump order attempting to ban it, but the Keystone Pipeline would have to go uh, for one of a permis, permit that he refused to grant. And oh, by the way, if you got yourself a Commando 450 showerhead during the freewheeling days of Donald Trump, uh, hand it over because there's a, there's a new sheriff in town and he takes a much tougher line on water conservation. Okay, fine, you're probably not gonna ruin Thanksgiving screaming at your hippie aunt over federal water flow standards. The issues that really get our blood up tend to involve uh, questions of identity, uh, race and racism, uh, white privilege, transgender rights, what it means to be an American all of which gets especially fraught when it involves what kids are taught in school. Uh, parents want to know, uh, is my fourth grader going to have to wear a mask while he's ritually denouncing himself uh, for, in a white privilege struggle session? These are important, important questions. Some issues divide us more than others. And Joe Biden, uh, like Donald Trump before him, seems hell-bent on injecting himself into every single one of them. I'll take just one example here, accommodations for transgender students. Would it be so hard to let people work this out locally? Do we need the president to tell us which kid can use which bathroom in every public school from the Mississippi Delta to the People's Republic of Berkeley? No, but it's probably gonna happen anyway. Uh, Joe Biden's first day executive order on gender identity sets the stage for uniform policies na nationwide on access to the restroom, the locker room, and school sports. Should biological males be allowed to play on girls' sports teams? It doesn't get more polarizing than, than that. The way I phrased the question is polarizing to some people. Sue me. Republicans and Democrats are 45 points apart on this question, according to Gallup recently. 86% of Republicans and 62% of Americans overall say no. Tough, says the Biden administration. The majority view is based on bias, misinformation, and fear. That's what the uh, Biden Justice Department asserts in a, re in a recent brief challenging West Virginia's Save Girls Sports Bill. Wow, be better, West Virginia. Read the room. Maybe the idea 
here is that by sticking his nose in, the uniter-in-chief will convince these yokels of their error of their ways. But here's a chart that should make us doubt that the president has any such magical unity powers. It shows the partisan gap in presidential approval, the difference between how members of the president's party rate him and how members of the other party do. And what used to be a difference of 30 to 40 points up through the 1970s has exploded in recent decades. Nearly 60 points for W, 70, around 70 for Obama. Trump cracked 80. That's the current record for a full term, but don't sleep on Sleepy Joe. He hit 85% in his first 100 days. What it, what it doesn't show, or at least is clearly, is that presidents are getting less popular overall, not just more po polarizing. No president this century has an average approval rating for a full term that's cracked 50%. How is any president supposed to unite us? We're polarized around him. The president polarizes everything he touches. There's a scene in the first season of The Sopranos where a depressed Tony Soprano laments to Dr. Melfi, I'm like King Midas in reverse. Everything I touch turns to not gold. There's a similar dynamic going on with the, with the presidency. Just by making an issue part of his agenda, uh, a president can create a partisan flashpoint where one did not exist before and need not exist. Um, in some ways, that's exactly what's happening with Joe Biden's vaccine mandate. And I had to cut that part from my speech, so ask me uh, in questions. But to add to the general tenor of uh, good news, what, what did George Will say last night? Cheerfulness is a civic duty in a democracy. So I'm sorry about what I've done to you this morning. Uh, <laughs> Buckle up, it's probably going to get worse. We've known from the start that in a bitterly divided country with a 50-50 Senate, Joe Biden was going to come under enormous pressure to get big things done with the pen and the phone. And there's a lot left on the progressive wish list. Chuck Schumer wants him to declare a climate emergency uh, in the fashion that uh, Donald Trump declared a border wall emergency. Elizabeth Warren is after him to declare an executive jubilee on student loans, just writing off up to $50,000 per, per borrower at a cost of around a trillion dollars to the U.S. taxpayer. Our system and our politics today are going to provide Joe Biden with powerful incentives to get in touch with his inner authoritarian. And if and when he does, to the extent that he hasn't already, uh, there is one thing we can be sure about. It's not going to lower the temperature of our overheated politics. You know what else won't? Replacing Joe Biden with, say, Ron DeSantis. I know a bunch of you are going to go for it if he's the nominee, and I'm not going to shame you about it. Some of my best friends and favorite blood relatives are transactional Republicans. If I live somewhere where my vote mattered, you know, I might be tempted myself instead of taking the chad for whatever crazy cat lady or dude living in his car that the uh, Libertarian Party comes up with every four years. 
But it's not going to fix anything. It's not going to fix our fundamental problems. I mean, you know, Ron DeSantis will issue an executive order on puberty blockers for tweens and appoint Joe Rogan to a cabinet post or something, and, and we'll just end up screaming at each other or, or worse for the whole four years. More fundamental changes are needed. Because do we really want to go on living like this? I mean, isn't it exhausting? George Will is a, is a Coolidge man, but Harding is my guy. Normalcy. We heard a lot about this uh, in the uh, 2020 campaign, this notion that uh, just by electing someone who doesn't act out on Twitter, we were going to restore normalcy. Well, more fundamental changes are needed than that uh, to make us feel like a normal country again. If we want to take some of the heat out of our feverish politics, we need to lower the stakes of our politics and lower the stakes of the presidency. We need to make the presidency normal again. And that means reining in emergency powers, uh, war powers, unilateral trade authorities, uh, and the president's power to make law with the stroke of a pen. Now, I'm not known around the office for my sunny optimism, but I have to say that the prospects for a major effort towards de-imperializing the presidency are better right now than they have been the entire time I've been working on these issues and uh, probably at any time since Watergate. There are strange coalitions on the Hill, uh, some of them producing good bills. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee have co-sponsored one called the National Security Powers Act that's one of the best that I've seen in quite some time. Uh, in current practice, for a number of reasons, the president, in many areas, more or less gets to do what he wants unless a veto-proof congressional supermajority can be assembled to stop him and overturn uh, what he's done. We saw that with uh, the bulk of the vetoes that uh, Donald Trump issued during his, during his term uh, involved things like this, congressional attempts to overturn the border wall emergency, uh, to, to restrain him from further action in Iran. Uh, this is how it works. The default setting in American government has shifted towards the president. Uh, the president gets to act, and it's Congress that has an extremely weak and hard-to-exercise veto over executive action. Uh, the, the Lee Sanders bill, the National Security Powers Act, changes that default setting in war and national emergencies. Powers uh, and, and orders of the president expire without affirmative approval from Congress. That's the way it's supposed to work. And Cato does a lot behind the, uh, the scenes on issues like this. Uh, I got to weigh in with my comments and edits on this bill before it was introduced. And in this case, it was Bernie's guys that reached out to me, so go figure. But Mike Lee is, has a number of other smart bills that, that operate in a very similar fashion to reclaim congressional powers over trade and the regulatory state in general. Um, our legal folks here uh, tackle it from, a, from another side uh, with the amicus brief program, attacking judicial doctrines that have empowered the administrative state and thus the presidency. And as I say, uh, things are moving in the right direction um, slowly, uh, and all of this is a heavy lift. And even if accomplished, none of it will kumbaya us 
into an era of good feelings. The presidency is not the only thing that polarized us, and getting it to the right size won't bring us all together magically. But what it will do is make things less dangerous in partisan polarized times. Look, I would rather have us come to our senses, put politics in, per in perspective, and get in touch with what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. But until, unless and until we do, until we have that kind of moral reawakening, our more immediate need right now is to limit the damage that presidents can do and that we can do to each other in the fog of partisan war. Thank you. Gene Healy is a senior vice president at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.